Hello and welcome to episode 92 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now joining me on today's episode is the film director Keith Thomas. I believe this film director has a huge, huge future ahead of him. He's only just released a film which I'm sure you've heard of. In the horror community, people are going crazy for it. The Vigil. It's had the backing of Bloomhouse, and most recently he's just signed on to do the new adaptation of Stephen King's Firestarter. I really am absolutely thrilled that Keith's joining me today, and it's one of my favourite interviews I've done in a very long time. We hit off straight away, the chemistry's there, and we could talk for hours, so I can't wait to share this with you, but you're going to have to stick around just a little bit longer to hear that. On the last episode, I was joined by Jed Shepard, the writer of a horror that's gone absolutely through the roof over the last couple of weeks. Everyone is talking about Host, which has been on Shudder. This is a film that's just getting bigger and bigger. As I'm sitting here today, it's just been on the news. All the film critics are talking about it, and I think I just got him in time because his world is going to go bigger and bigger. And I also believe that about today's guest, Keith Thomas. So what I want to do now is get straight to that interview with me and Keith, so here it is. Here's me and Keith talking all things horror. First of all, Keith, I'd like to thank you for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. What I want to do is start by anyone that's listening that doesn't know of your work or anything. I want to take it back right to the start. So when you were growing up, what were your kind of favorite films or genre or those movies that you were watching that shaped the kind of taste you have now in film? Yeah, I, uh, I grew up, you know, very much into films like Alien and aliens and predator and uh you know a lot of sci-fi horror i think it was uh, you know as a kid i liked sci-fi quite a bit and read a lot and then that slowly gravitated you know moved its way into horror so you know i grew up watching a lot of a lot of horror movies having sleepovers with friends where we'd go you know to the rental store and check out you know four or five movies and stay up till 6 a.m and just try to freak each other out with these movies uh, and then that, as I got older, that switched more into art, what they call art house, you know, film. So a lot of European, a lot of European movies. And then in college, I actually studied European film um, as like a minor. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, then it just, when it came time for me to start considering making films, it was a merging of those two in a way of my kind of love for horror and also my appreciation and kind of you know, uh, studying of European film, in particular Italian and German. Were there kind of early directors when you're watching stuff like Alien and Aliens and seeing mm-hmm. like Ridley Scott and people like this? Were you, was there yeah. a certain director that you were wanting to kind of find out more about them and scope out more of their work because they impressed you or were you just watching it for the films that they were at the time? Yeah, I think definitely Ridley Scott. I mean, once I'd yeah. seen Alien and then Blade Runner, uh, you know, I, I saw them on videotape, you know, long after they'd come out, but I, I really kind of was searching for all his stuff and kind of tracking it down. And, and then, yeah, reading interviews and trying to find information. So he was one who was this very visual stylistic director who is super commercial, which yeah. is interesting. And he's, you know, and then, you know, James Cameron is a similar one who's, you know, had nothing but hits and he at the same time does his own thing in a, in a more commercial way than Ridley, I think. But, um, you know, so stuff like that. And David Fincher was another one. So, you know, those directors. Great, starting, uh, great influences there to go with. That's not <laughs> you, uh... Definitely, you know, the, the, the Trinity in a way. But, uh, you know, there was another director, Jean-Jacques Benix, who uh, 
I, I mispronounce his name, of course, but he directed a movie called Betty Blue, right. which I'd seen, I think, in high school, and I was just struck by it. I actually wrote him a letter. Uh, I somehow found his address and wrote him a letter. Uh, he wrote back, which was very sweet, but it was kind of one of those first moments. That was, I think, my first communication with a filmmaker. Nice. And, uh, yeah, no, he was very encouraging. It was great. So at what point was it that you thought, instead of just learning about it and wanting to do it, it became a reality where you thought, I could actually try and do this myself? Because obviously getting involved in film, some people will do writing of scripts or do some cinematography work or some editing. But when was it you thought, I'm actually going to want to focus my life on becoming a director? Yeah, it's funny because there was, I had that thought in high school. That's kind of what I wanted to do. Yeah. And then I took a 20 year pause where I went into a completely different career. When I was in high school, I wanted to be in film, but I, I was under the assumption that you had to have connections or know somebody in Hollywood. Or, there was just no way to truly do it. And so I gave up and I uh, went into, I spent, I had a career in clinical research in uh, medicine and I did that uh, and I enjoyed that quite a bit. But kind of there was always that creative thing at the back of my head, kind of it first manifest in kind of in writing short stories and poetry and publishing. And then it became longer and longer works to novels and then screenplays. Um, And so once I started writing, it was about a 10 year journey of writing screenplays that were rejected and then finally getting a manager and then finally selling screenplays. Um, and then about six years ago, seven years ago, I quit my day job and was fully committed to, to doing this. Um, and I did a short film in 2017. I, I, you know, I studied film in college, but it was, you know, academic. It was me, you know, looking at Tarkovsky movies and stuff, but I didn't know how to make a film. I had no idea. So I, convinced my wife to let a let me use our some of our savings and I did this kind of three-month boot camp of I'm going to write direct produce and do whatever it takes and I made this short film and I by that time I'd had enough kind of connections in Hollywood through screenwriting that I was able to send it to people and that essentially led to the vigil. So how did the conversation go when you're in a full-time secure role, uh, bringing in money and then turning around to the wife and saying, I want to stop doing all this and I want to follow my dream. Was it a kind of an easy decision or was it a lot of convincing and kind of, you know, it was funny. The convincing part came from my wife. Wow. Yeah. She had always been really, really encouraging of me to explore my creative side as much as possible. And so she had, you know, I had threatened to quit my job and just write full time or to pursue filmmaking. And she was always like, you got to do it. You should do it. And I'd be like, I'd say, this is, no, I can't. It's too risky. Yeah. Who makes it? No one can make it. It's too difficult. Like, how do you do that? Um, so, yeah, it was her cajoling. And, you know, eventually got to the point where I was like, I, I think I need to do this. And she said, I'm here. Let's do it. Let's go for it. And then I said, well, I want to take a bunch of money and (laughs) make a short film. And, you know, we're never going to make that money back. You know, it's a short film. It's just this is a proof of concept of that I can direct something and I might fail miserably. Uh, And she was willing to take the risk and kind of encouraged it. So was this three years ago when you released Arcane? Is that right? Yeah, it was Arcane. Mm -hmm. 
So how did that come about? Because obviously you got the money yourself, so you self-funded it. Um, did you at that stage realise how much work was involved? Had you bit off more than you could chew? Or was it a great learning experience to set you up for the sort of roles you're now doing? Yeah, no, it was, it was a great learning experience. It, it was a two-day shoot. You know, we had a couple months of prep. But everything that could go wrong in two days did on that shoot. <laughs> In that, you know, my, my director of photography, his wife went into labor the night after the, the, the day after our first shooting. Wow. So he couldn't be there the next day. And I had to scramble and find a DP to fill in with three hours notice in Denver, Colorado, where there are very few DPs. He's one of the best DPs in Denver. So that was insane. My, my, you know, one of the crew members had had uh, kidney stones and had to go to the ER. That was also the first night, you know, it rained when it wasn't supposed to rain and just everything was crazy. And yet I was still able to accomplish what I wanted and kind of make the film that I had been envisioning. Yeah. Um, and so that was a, it was a great learning experience in that I kind of learned the rope in terms of how the set functions and how we do what we need to do. And then also just trouble, trouble solving, problem solving. I mean, that it becomes, you know, that's essential <laughs> to any filmmaking endeavor because you can plan for everything, but, you know, it, something's going to go wrong. Something's going to go wrong every single day you shoot. And it's all about figuring that out, no matter the budget. So how do you go then from doing a short film for kind of your first um, chance to kind of put your name onto something as a director to then coming into doing the vigil this year, which is obviously a huge budget and much with um, a number of stars involved. The jump is absolutely massive, isn't it? Yeah, no, I, uh, it was, you know, it was a long process in a lot of ways because once Arcane had kind of done its thing, uh, and kind of gotten around and I'd signed with uh, you know, a manager who was very receptive to kind of the ideas that I'd had. You know, I had developed a arcane. The short film has been developed into a film script. Um, that is a project that is actually set up with a production company now. And it's something that I've been trying to get off the ground for a while. And it was in the course of trying to get that off the ground that I decided to write the vigil. Um, and, you know, it was an interesting situation because I'd written the script and there was interest in buying it, but without letting me direct it. Right. So it was kind of one of those where I had to turn down money uh, to just buy, buy me out essentially buy the script uh, insisting that I was going to direct it. <laughs> so, you know, that, that led its own course. But when I met the producers on the vigil, uh, they were, you know, once I'd convinced them that I could do this, it was something that they were like, okay, we're going to, we're going to go for it. So amazingly the vigil, I wrote the script and we were in production shooting it eight months later, which is highly unusual for these sorts of things. You know, the film that I'm prepping now, uh, Firestarter, which is at Universal and Blumhouse, you know, it's been technically that it's a film that they've been trying to get together, uh, for years. And, uh, you know, the, these studio movies are much more difficult to kind of get off the ground than, a, than an independent like The Vigil. So, I, But I was lucky. Eight months is a short time. So talk to me about The Vigil. How much involvement did you have with stuff like the casting and everything else? Because obviously I know you had uh, written it, had the directing, but what was it else that you, was there bits where you just had to hand some of the reins over because it was so much of a big project? Yeah, it was, you know, I, I was very involved really on almost every level 
Um, casting was very important. It was tough casting. And uh, Dave Davis, who's the, the lead in The Vigil, was somebody that uh, I, I had come across in a film and kind of really promoted and was able to get my producers interested in. But, you know, uh, casting, uh, set decoration, location scouting, just, you know, really hands-on and a lot of it. And it's interesting because in pre-production, you can be very, very hands-on in terms of like, I'm going to be in every meeting and I'm going to be sitting here. And then of course, once you start shooting, things are much more intense and you do have to delegate. And, you know, it's something that I think most directors have to come to terms with. Uh, You want to ensure your vision, but at the same time, you cannot do everything. And nobody wants anybody. No one wants a director who's micromanaging everything on set. You have to be willing to say, okay, you're going to do this and I'm going to let you do that. And that's fine. I know, I know what I want. And I think, you know, what you, what we want to do together. And so uh, I'm going to let you go. And, you know, it takes a little while to get into that groove because every set is different and everyone's trying to figure it out. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was definitely a big part of it, of learning to delegate, learning to kind of let go in some, yeah. some instances. And with it being such a short space of time from when it actually then went into post-production and stuff, um, mm-hmm. did you feel it was quite realistic timeframes or was it too much? Were you getting kind of suffocated in it at, at <laughs> a point where, because you said like everything could go wrong with your first film, Arcane, but with this, right. was there a lot more um, chance to, like you said, delegate or did you still feel at times that it was just an absolute huge project to do in such a short space of time? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely days you walk in and you're like this is just a shit show and i have no <laughs> yeah you know what how this is going to come together um and then amazingly it does i think it's just relying on other people and just kind of figuring it out and, and, and then trusting you just come to trust people and know okay yeah we all have the best interests in mind and we know where we're going with this um it was funny we in the vigil there aren't any left out scenes there are no cut scenes everything that we shot is in that movie um which was actually nerve-wracking because when we finished and we started the edit i was worried because i was like oh no what if you know what if we're missing something uh what if there's you know something we need to tweak here or there but the edit came together really really quickly we had our first cut of the film within weeks um yeah which was uh, shocking but also and, and worrisome in a lot of ways but uh, it was kind of one of those things of we made, we had committed ourselves to this idea when we started it that we were going to shoot only what we need and we were going to, you know, and this is it. This is, we're making the movie in production and we'll edit it and we'll, let's just see what happens. The longest piece was the post-production sound. Yeah. Sound design and score. That took quite a long time. Um, but just being very particular and kind of really wanting to develop the sound as, you know, as much as we could and we kind of had time. So that was nice. And now it's all done and you can watch it back. Are you in a place where you're really proud of it or is there things that kind of get <laughs> you where you think, I wish I could change this or are you really, really kind of in a good place with it? Yeah, I, you know, I've seen it how many hundred times at this point, you know, from when we watch it doing the sound mixing in a theater. So I, I'd seen it you know, countless times that way. And every time I'd watch it, you know, with a critical eye when I'm kind of listening to certain sounds or it's interesting when you're in the edit or when you're doing sound design or, you know, the score, you're watching the movie in tiny chunks 
you're watching a minute at a time and then you're reversing and watching a minute and reversing and watching a minute. So you have no, you, it's hard to get a cohesive sense of the whole film. Yeah. So you kind of have to have a screening. Uh, and I think, and I was critical of it every single time I'd seen it up until we had our premiere at Toronto. Uh, and then I just kind of had to sit on my hands and watch it with the audience. And I couldn't, I couldn't yell, Hey, stop. I need to fix something or stop. This isn't working. I just had to suffer through it. And uh, I actually found myself at that point able to divorce, you know, my critical mind from it and just be like, okay, I, I enjoy this movie. This movie's pretty good. This is, this turned out right. Um, because, you know, when you write and direct something like this, it's in your head from the moment you start the script, like you've seen it. Yeah. And there's so many kind of changes along the way. So when you're writing it, you see one movie, but then when you begin pre-production and you see the actual location you're at, or the, it's a different movie. Like that movie in your head has changed. This is not exactly the house you saw. This is not maybe the, you know, the actors you saw. So then it becomes a different movie in pre-production. And then when you start shooting, it changes again because, you know, things that you prepped for maybe don't work out or this changed, or maybe this is even better than you thought. And then of course in post it changes yet again and the sound design or whatever, and the color becomes something else. And sometimes it goes back to that original thing, which I think I was lucky enough with the vigil in that by the end, by the time we were done with post-production, I, I felt like, okay, this is back to where I saw it originally when I first sat down to write it, um, which was nice. And then how was it that Bloomhouse got, inv uh, got involved with this film? Because obviously that's a hell of a name to have established <laughs> and put out there and it kind of gives you a huge bump, doesn't it, straight away? Yeah, no, it was, so we'd made the film and uh, it was right after the premiere at Toronto, at the Toronto International Film Festival. Um, I, we'd gotten a bunch of interest from uh, distributors and folks at the festival and then a couple weeks afterwards, I was at Fantastic Fest in Austin, um, which I try to go to every year. And uh, I got a call that Jason Blum wanted to see me. And uh, so I cut that trip short and flew out to LA and met with Jason. And uh, he was, you know, just to have him being a really big fan of the movie and not only a big fan, but wanting to acquire the film and distribute it in the United States was huge. I mean, it was it was both kind of a validation in a way of, well, if, if this guy respects it, <laughs> then it, you know, then there must be something to it, right? Maybe something worked here. Um, but just, you know, just sitting and talking with them and kind of going over their plans and what excited them about the film and kind of what they want to do with it. Yeah, that was a huge moment. It was definitely one where I remember driving away from it and talking to my manager and being and kind of thinking, that's crazy that that just happened. <laughs> we just, that I was hanging out in his office uh, talking about our movie and other projects, which, yeah, I would never have expected when we were filming the vigil, you know, when you're yeah. in the heat of it, I'm just trying to make a movie that's good enough to show my family um, and not be in a total embarrassment. So it was, you know, it was thrilling to kind of rocket, rocket right out like that. At the moment, obviously, the film's not officially out till the end of the month. I think we've got another week and a half or something. But yeah. um, the early reviews I've seen from some of the press is very, very high. You've seen a lot of five stars and really good words. You know, you're getting all the excellent and perfect horror and all this. <laughs> Has that been really good for you? Because obviously, it must be very nervous sitting there waiting to see what they're actually going to say about you. 
Yeah, no, it's definitely it's definitely nerve wracking, and it's been it the you know the COVID situation yeah. of it all now has been interesting because you know the films has its release. It's it first out in New Zealand and then Australia, and then slowly moving you know through UK and uh, France, Germany, and and it'll come out here in the states uh, in the fall in the you know. So it's an interesting seeing it kind of the reaction overseas before we anyone gets to see it here is interesting. I've been very happy with kind of the critical response. Again, it's something that I didn't expect. You know, I when we sat down to make this movie, I just really wanted to make a scary movie. I just yeah. wanted to make a horror film. And I knew I was going to use tropes of the horror film. In my mind, there have been countless Christian supernatural horror films i mean there, you know there's 10 or 20 every year yeah. in terms of possession movies or devil movies or demon movies um and i wanted to make one that was jewish with the mythology and the kind of world that didn't feel like an art film in, in the sense that it, it felt like a commercial horror film i just wanted to make a commercial horror film like any other possession of blank 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 movie um, but within this world. And so the goal was always, when I sat down with my producers, I said, guys, this, you know, I want to make sure this isn't a Jewish film. This is a horror movie. It happens to be set here and through this lens, but we're going to have jump scares and love them or hate them. <laughs> jump scares are an integral part of horror film. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that we were achieving those goals in terms of let's have the scares. Let's make it up like a horror film. Let's do it as a horror film we'll have all this extra stuff added um, because I think as to the richness of it, but I've been happy to see kind of the critical, the critics seeing the uh, both the horror film nature of it, but also kind of the, the stuff I was going for additionally in terms of emotional stuff and uh, larger themes. And you've slightly mentioned it already on today's interview, but obviously coming up, we have Firestarter. Um, mm. Can you reveal much about this at the moment or is it kind of all under wraps? Obviously I remember sitting there as a kid watching this and being a huge fan of Stephen King <laughs> right. and I thought it was an absolute classic. You know, I put it up there with Cujo and all the kind of pet cemetery sort of films. Um, how is it that this came about and is it from obviously you working with Bloomhouse that this then got discussed as a future project or? Yeah. I mean, it, it literally happened that day that I first met Jason um, and we were, talking about the vigil and you know he was very interested in me coming aboard the Blumhouse family and finding a project to work on and so he threw Firestarter out there and it happened to be that it's one of my favorites of King's books yeah uh, one that I, I read as a kid and really really loved and I'd seen the film too and you know I, I quite I think the, the 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 earlier film holds up quite a bit Certainly the effects do. A lot yeah. of these practical fire effects are very, very cool. Um, and so, you know, I was very excited. I read the script. The script's by this guy, Scott Teams, who wrote the new Halloween Kills. Yeah. Um, and he's, a, he's an amazing writer. He's done a number of series. Narcos, he was on. And Rectify was a show that he created and wrote. Um, and, you know, so I was, the script was great. And right now... You know, I think the script's in a really good place. We're really happy with it. We're hoping to shoot the film this year. Um, it all comes down to kind of pandemic stuff and figuring yeah. out how to get started. Um, but I think if you're a fan of the book and probably even a fan of the original film, you're 
you're going to find a lot in this new version of Firestart. I call it like a new adaptation of the book um, that, you know, I, I think it'll do a lot of what I try to do with the vigil, the vigil. If you want to watch just a scary movie, vigil can be just a scary movie. If you want to look for deeper themes and things like that, the vigil can do that too. For Firestarter, if you want to see somebody's face melted off in graphic detail by a little girl, then uh, you'll get that. If yeah. you want kind of deeper themes around a father and a daughter on the run um, and struggling to survive in kind of intense, an incredibly intense situation, you're going to have that too. Um, so, you know, it's got a lot of meat to it. I'm really excited about it. And, uh, you know, like I said, hopefully we'll get it in front of cameras sometime before the end of the year. With Stephen King being such a prolific writer and his kind of legacy that he's got of his work, mm. do you feel the extra pressure when you're handling <laughs> something of his? Because sometimes I think people get it right. So I wasn't a big fan of the remake of Pet Cemetery. I didn't mm -hmm. think it was done well. But then you mm. see stuff like, you know, Green Mile or Shawshank, which is done to perfection. Are you under that kind of extra pressure, knowing that it's such a sacred name you're, you're kind <laughs> of dealing with? Yeah, no, I mean, that pressure is definitely there. And there's... And it's kind of twofold in that there's the legacy of just King's work in general and being true to that and kind of trying to capture his voice uh, as it comes through the books. I mean, he just has such a distinctive voice and style, um, both capturing that and being true to that. At the same time, there's a kind of filmic legacy. I mean, because people have been making movies for King material since the 70s. Yeah. And even some of the very first ones like Carrie are amazing. So it's, you know, how do you, you know, so, so it's both being cognizant of that and being, you know, saying, oh, I want to make a good King movie. I want to have this deliver. At the same time, you kind of have to step away from it and say, I need to just make my movie. This just has this, you know, here's what I like in what I'm going for in Firestarter. And I want to be true to that. Otherwise I'll be too distracted yeah. by the Kingness of it. Um, I will say that, you know, Stephen King has read the script. I mean, he saw the vigil. He, he read this script and he was really kind of blown away by what teams wrote. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he, he's just as excited for this kind of version of Firestarter. Um, so, so that gives me comfort, you know, that it's gotten the brand of seal of approval. Uh, if King is happy with it, then I, I think if we do exactly what we wrote, you know, what's in that script, uh, then, you know, it should turn out really good. It must be amazing to know he's kind of sitting there reading the script. And, <laughs> and you, I must be, I don't know how to get my head around that just to yeah. be like, wow. Yeah, no, it's a funny, you know, when I, when I had gotten a email, uh, his, his agent had emailed my agent, you know, and uh, had mentioned that he'd watched the vigil. It was definitely one of those moments where I was like, wow, Stephen King took the time to sit down and watch my movie. That's, and then respond to it and yeah. you know, give me his thoughts. That's, yeah, that's kind of crazy. You know, especially when I think back six years ago when I was doing clinical research and- <laughs> Yeah, very different. None of this, none of this whatever, this seemed uh, unattainable. It's, yeah. it's, a, it's funny how things can change very, very quickly. And my final question, which I ask everybody that comes on the podcast is there's going to be a lot of people that listen to this who are inspired and want to become like yourself, a filmmaker or make a short or write a script. What advice do you give to those people that are listening? Because it's a hard world to get in. Uh, the business is changing every day. There's streaming now for all the big movies. It's not as easy. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, to get your kind of work viewed is easy because there's all these channels to get on. But sure. as someone like yourself, what advice do you give to those people that are trying to get a name and get in the business and become the next big thing? Yeah, I think twofold. I think you have to you have to be committed. You have to take yourself and your work seriously. Uh, and you have to be willing to put in the hours, you know, for me to get to the point where I made the vigil, like I said, it'd been 10 years that I'd started writing screenplays and that's 10 years of working. I mean, you know, this could be just my experience. <laughs> Maybe I'm slow, but it took me working every night and sometimes days, seven days a week, 362 days a year for 10 years to get to that point. A, that I was ready, you know, and when you're ready, the door will open there. I think a lot of people go try to get in too soon. They, they kind of, the first script they write, they send out to see if they can get a manager. Your first script's going to suck. I mean, that's yeah. just the truth of the matter. It, you know, you're going to have to write 10 of them before you even find your own voice and kind of get to where you need to be. Um, a second piece of advice would be that you need to just do it. A lot of people kind of, you know, uh, pick at the edges of something and never actually like go for it. If you want to be a filmmaker, you need to make a film. I mean, that's, that's exactly kind of what happened with me in that I could talk about, I want to make a short film or I want to make this film. I could write a script. I could storyboard it. I could show you a lookbook and a deck, a visual deck of exactly what this will look like. But until you've done it, no one's going to really pay that much attention yeah. because everyone's got ideas. So, you know, for me making that short film, sure. I used my own money. It wasn't a lot of money, but you know, if you have that opportunity, if you get a chunk of money, then put it kind of where your mouth is and get out there and make something. Um, The one caveat to that is don't rush. Don't rush that either. You know, before you make your first film, you have all the time in the world to make it right, right? It's once you've gotten on the train that things get tougher. There are deadlines and lots of other voices in the room. So take your time, figure out what that's going to be. And if an opportunity comes, someone gives you 5,000 bucks or whatever it is, do it. Go and make it and show people what you can do rather than just talk about it. I think that's absolutely amazing advice, to be fair. Um, (laughs) I, I keep looking in the background. I can see like the Twin Peaks box set and I can see loads of arrows. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Things. You noticed that one? Yeah. And I can see some arrow releases and I'm just like, I just want to oh, talk yeah. about there's all a, those films. There's the whole, it goes all the way up there, this, this, all this arrow. Yeah. Go back here and, you know, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, this is my, my wife calls it my brain. But yeah. it's, you know, it's, these are just all these influences. It's always struck me when I was, a, you know, mostly a novelist. Um, people would always ask about becoming a novelist and how do you write and whatever and get an agent and sell a book. And the thing I always say is you got to read. If you're not reading constantly and devouring stuff and you're never going to be able to, you know, create your own work. So films, yeah, I, I, I just, I have to constantly be watching and kind of coming, you know, that's, that's the way that creativity happens is, seeing what other people are doing and figuring it out and kind of working through it. And for me, you know, listening to director commentary was huge. So while I love streaming, 
I still have a whole kind of physical media thing going on because I need those extras. You know, I need to hear how they did whatever it is they, they did and where that creativity came from. Arrow take all my money. Um, every time I get paid, <laughs> yeah. I, I end up buying their special editions and they'll bring out a steelbook version of one I've already owned already. Oh, I know. Um, and their, their extras are incredible. I watched a film recently after midnight and then yes. the, um, the extra was Battery, which was their debut film as the directors. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's just an extra. Like, wow. Right. Oh, I know. I know. And I love that stuff, you know, and there's a lot of these companies that will do that, especially with, what's great now is they'll dig up these kind of either forgotten or frankly, even terrible films that you can, I don't remember who said it, but someone, there's a quote out there about bad art and how, I mean, you can learn so much from it. So I love that there are these companies kind of digging, digging through just all these forgotten or abandoned movies. And then they'll not only just put them out on Blu-ray, but then they'll have all these additional like extra films or short films or whatever it is on the back end. That, yeah, you can really learn a lot. You can watch somebody's development as a filmmaker uh, by watching their short films and then whatever earlier film it was. Uh, I love that stuff. I, you know, that's the, that's, the, that's the food. That's the food that you live on as a filmmaker is kind of digging into that stuff, how these things came to be. So does it excite you that hopefully one day we'll get a special <laughs> like Scream Factory or someone that does Firestarter and then you have to provide the commentaries and the outtakes. Right. And I put Arcane on there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, no, I've thought about that. That's a lot, it is, it's a lot of fun. I, you know, it's, it's definitely, that, that almost feels like a huge hurdle because, you know, having all this stuff and watching and listening to it, I definitely, you know, I would feel like, I have to deliver, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, can, I can read all this stuff and talk about it, but if I have to do my own commentary track, I better deliver. It better be legit because, you know, those are great vehicles for kind of learning and just, you know, getting to know the work that you love so much. I spent most of my days at college and uni listening to audio commentary from Kevin Smith on every film he did. <laughs> oh, his, his commentaries are amazing. They yeah. are really amazing. Even if you don't necessarily like the film, yeah, his commentary is worth owning it for. It's incredible, and then obviously listening to David Fincher and stuff talking Fight Club is like, and then you got Radiohead on there and all this, and it was one of those things where I'd buy the disc and spin it seven times to listen to every commentary, and it's just mind blowing. It's like people, I, I hate it now when I buy a Blu-ray or DVD, and it's like extras, trailer, and TV spot. I'm like, right. oh, well, that or there's like a, a little five minute puff piece behind the scenes thing. <sighs> no, yeah, you want to see? I, I can't remember if it's on the social network. But one of the Fincher ones, there's a great, it just has all these outtakes um, where they've, you know, because he'll do like 40 takes of each scene and you'll see like 20 of them. These just these little takes. And it's just somebody walking up to a table. Um, I love that. And you can see Fincher there directing and you see with his headphones as he's watching and listening and looking at the monitor and figuring stuff out. That's so valuable. There's how else do you see that? I mean, you know, it's one of those things where if you've never been on a set, you'd have no idea how they function or how it works unless you could see that stuff. Yeah. Um, and listen to those commentaries and kind of, I mean, it is the Fight Club commentary is and also an, an amazing one because that film seems so polished and so kind of perfected. And when you listen to him talk about, well, this was a shitty day and this didn't work and yeah. you hear all that stuff. It's, you know, it's fascinating too, because it's humbling in some ways, but it's also, it's great. Cause it feels like, Oh, this is accessible. 
Yeah. Uh, if he can do that, I can do that. If he figured that out, I can figure that out. He is human after all. <laughs> Believe it or not. I know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I wish you all the luck with the new release. Uh, I think Thank obviously you. your kind of career is just starting when you think about what's ahead. Um, mm-hmm. I hope that this time next year you're back on and we're talking all about Firestarter. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. But yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you today. And I just want to thank you for your time. It's been awesome. And I, I think I could end up talking to you for hours and hours, to be honest. Um, no, it was a lot of fun, Mark. Talked a lot about a lot of cool stuff that I don't yeah. usually get to talk about. So that was fun. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Keith Thomas. An absolute pleasure to have on the episode. And honestly, a pleasure to interview. It never feels like work when you get a guest like Keith. From the very start to the end of the interview, it never feels like work. We could have talked for two or three hours, and I really do hope I can get him back on the podcast, maybe closer to the release of Firestarter, to talk more and more about horror. I think he's got an amazing vision, and I can't wait to see what he does with this Stephen King adaptation. Let's be completely honest, Stephen King is iconic. He's an absolute legend and a prolific writer. To do his work justice is no easy task, but I believe Keith can do it better than anyone, and I can't wait to see where he takes us on this journey, hopefully by next year, if there's no further delays with production. I want to say a big thanks to Keith for coming on the podcast, but more importantly, thanks to you guys for tuning in and listening. The world is a crazy place right now, and I really do appreciate the time you all invest in Mark and me. As you know, I've got a website, markandme.com, and on there you can access links to all the Spotify, the iTunes, the Podomatic, all previous episodes, and we're near the big 100, so there's a lot of episodes to work through if you're new to the podcast. But on there as well, there's my Facebook page, my email address, my Twitter, my Instagram. I'm very active on them all, and I do promise that if you take the time to email me or tweet to me or send me a message, I will reply. I read every single one, and if you fed back about an episode, I'll always forward that on to the guest as well, because they love reading it. So thank you guys for tuning in. It's absolutely manic at the moment, and I'm busier than I've ever been. You're getting more episodes than you've ever got. But to do this, I need support via Patreon. And I have got a page that's open right now. You can access it on markandme.com or via Twitter or Facebook. Every penny that you put into the podcast gets invested back into the podcast. I never pay myself. And as you know, I'm a one-man team. I record, I schedule the interviews, I conduct the interviews, I produce and edit, and then I publish them. And I manage all my social media. I'm a one-man team. So any support goes a long, long way. And I really do appreciate it. But on top of that, you're not just getting the episodes every week by being a Patreon. There's opportunities to win some amazing prizes. And I'll say it now, in September, I've raised the bar higher than ever with the amount of gifts and prizes that most of the guests have donated. And honestly, you need to stay tuned. I'm not building it up to fail. The prizes are completely mind-blowing. I can't wait to share them all. So if you jump onto Patreon, for less than a pound a month, you can sponsor me and endorse me and help me and support me. And it really does make a huge difference to the podcast. Thank you again for listening and taking the time. As it is so busy at the moment, I'm not even going to say I'll speak to you in a week. I'll be back with a brand new podcast in a matter of days. And it's going absolutely insane. I truly believe my best work is about to come out. I've had some incredible guests on telling some incredible stories from all walks of life. You've got, uh, I can't really tease, but we've got some, um, I don't know what to say. I don't want to ruin it, but I've gone down and interviewed some new people from different areas within pop culture that I've never delved into before. And the payoff has been fantastic. So I can't wait to share all these with you very soon. So as it is right now, I'm going to say bye. 
I'll speak to you all in a few days' time, and thanks again for listening. Take care.